Hello and welcome to this week's edition of HSJ's podcast, Health Check. Unsurprisingly, we shall be uh, discussing the Cummins seven-hour marathon session from this week, um, in which, rather shockingly, he managed to talk seven hours and that apparently seemed to take lunch, which is something, you know, um, Nick, who I'm joined with, Nick Cardian, our senior correspondent, and Lawrence Dunhill, our bureau chief, would probably find um, impossible. But moving on from our own lunch habits, I just wanted to first uh, go through this morning. So we, uh, Matt Hancock was called to the Commons to answer an urgent question um, this morning. And unsurprisingly, he started talking about vaccines, which we obviously see as the government's way out of um, answering some of the, the big questions of what went wrong during um, the COVID uh, period in 2020. Um, so he started talking about vaccines and then did eventually manage to get around to discussing Cummins. Um, I think the most interesting thing from this morning so far is that he did fail to deny that he had told um, the Prime Minister and Cummins and obviously other people within the Cabinet that care, residents from care homes would be tested before they go into hospitals, which we know didn't actually happen for a key period of a month uh, between March and April. Um, so I think that was the most interesting from this morning, but let's concentrate first on what happened yesterday during his seven hours of talking. Um, Lawrence, I'm going to hand over to you because I think you've got kind of the key issues that, that were revealed, although obviously just to um, state here now, they are unsubstantiated as we as at the moment. Yeah, thanks Sharon. Uh, it, it was a pretty extraordinary parliamentary committee meeting. Well, I think we've all probably watched a lot of these meetings and we're used to civil servants sort of sitting there doing their utmost to not answer the question and or to say anything controversial at all. And this was just a kind of all out blistering attack from Dominic Cummings on Matt Hancock in particular. Um, kind of the, the jaw dropping initial quote was that he should have been fired for 15 or 20 things and he lied to everybody on multiple occasions. Um, and so the, there were kind of four, he, he was he was grilled a bit on, okay, what do you mean exactly? Can you, can we have some evidence please? And he was, um, there were, I thought there were four main issues that he raised really. So the, the, the first claim he made was around um, the, something that Hancock said last summer that everyone received the treatment they they required in the first wave of COVID and uh, Dominic Cummings said that clearly wasn't true because Chris Whitty and Chris Valance um, sorry Patrick Valance had um, had uh, told them that people had died in horrific circumstances not getting the care that they need um, there was a second one around PPE when apparently Hancock uh, told Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings that he he'd sorted PPE uh, back in uh, March and it was all fine. Um, and then when uh, Johnson and Cummings came back into into the government after uh, being ill with coronavirus, um, the the whole PPE situation was a shambles. And then apparently. Matt Hancock pointed the finger at um, Simon Stevens and Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, for blocking uh, PPE purchases. Um, and then Cummings said he asked the Cabinet Secretary, Sir Mark Sidwell, to go and investigate that. And it turned out that Hancock was lying, according to Dominic Cummings. Um, then there was the third issue around care homes, which um, I think you mentioned, Sharon, the um, Dominic Cummings said it was 
the, the government's repeated claim over the last year that they protected care homes was a complete nonsense um, and said that Matt Hancock in particular had lied about patients being tested before they were discharged from hospital to care homes and um, that Boris Johnson and Cummings were su were surprised when this when it sort of emerged that this hadn't happened during a key period. And I think the key there is that you know thirty thousand people died um, in care homes. I mean, one person tweeted out yesterday, um, saying that you know my mum and the entire floor on which she was living on her care home all died from COVID. So I think that actually, um, when he discovered that, um, again from coming back being sick, that that hadn't happened. I think you know that that was one of the, you know, one of the things that we might well have to um, think more harder about in, in the year forward as lessons learned. And then obviously your fourth one, Lawrence. Yeah, fourth one around test and trace. And um, there, there, there wasn't a specific allegation of lying here, but he said he said that we all remember the 100,000 uh, target for the number of tests completed by the end of April 2020. Um, and, and Cummings just uh, accused Hancock of causing chaos by announcing that target and then um, kind of manipulating all the numbers and and all the civil civil servants to just to try and hit that number when they should have been ramping things up in a more sustainable way, kind of with a view to the medium term. And uh, Nick, I'm going to go to you on this because uh, you did some excellent work around that 100k target. When, just to remind our listeners, what was actually happening um, at that time when Matt Hancock was obsessed, you know, um, obsessed being uh, uh, Cummings' uh, <clears throat> allegations with, with meeting that target? Yes, yeah, so in March, obviously, the testing capability in the UK was absolutely tiny compared to what it needed to be. And you'll probably remember there was a lot of criticism in the media of why um, the UK was performing so few tests uh, per day compared to other countries like Germany and South Korea. Um, and it was at the end of, I think, March when Matt Hancock then announced this target for 100,000 tests a day by the end of April. So throughout April, progress seemed to be not going particularly well in that the numbers of daily tests were sort of at the sort of 20 to 30,000 rather than the high up towards 100,000. And it was only really in the last week uh, of April when the numbers started to go up quite drastically. And um, as readers might remember, HSJ revealed that the main reason for that big increase um, was that the government had decided it was going to count um, tests that were mailed out to people, um, as well as tests that were being processed in labs. And we were told at the time by several sources who were close to the testing programme that, as Dominic Cummings said yesterday, Matt Hancock was absolutely obsessed with hitting that 100,000 target. Um, and I remember there was a line about, there were lots of discussions between him and Chris Wormald, the permanent secretary at the Department of Health about whether it was appropriate to count mailed out tests as part of the overall number, because many people uh, felt that it, you know, it shouldn't really be counted because they have no idea if those tests are actually used by the public, if they're used appropriately, if they're processed in time, and it, it kind of wasn't. Or if they've even had arrived at all. Or if they had arrived at all, yes. Um, so, you know, and there was a lot of controversy over that. Um, in the end, the government decided to count it. 
but I think a lot of the public were obviously um well, there was some skepticism about the the figures. And I remember in the sort of few days after April when Hancock said that we have now hit this target, there was some kickback from the UK Statistics Authority, which said that um there should be much more transparency around how these tests are counted. Um and, and I think yeah, the point that Dominic Cummings made yesterday was that this was all happening at a time when we the UK did need to ramp up its testing capacity. And the focus should have been on just making sure the labs were put in place, that you know, the big lighthouse laboratories that eventually came on stream, that they were put in place, that the resources and the attentions were focused in that kind of longer term um, vision. Whereas Matt Hancock was only thinking about the end of April and getting to that 100,000 target because he had announced that um, that, that was sort of the, the important thing to achieve. Um, and so, I think when, when Dominic Cummings said that yesterday, I think that did chime with the experience at the time of a lot of officials that were working on the testing programme at the time. I think it's uh, quite interesting because just now he's against, uh, while we are uh, just uh, recording this, Matt Hancock is still speaking in the Commons, um, and he just responded to another question about care homes, uh, about whether or not um, people were tested before they were um, released and, you know, um, into care homes from hospitals. And he said, you know, I've answered this many times, we have to build the testing capacity. So I think that really underlines this issue around trying to, uh, you know, work towards an arbitrary target that he himself set, um, that it did seem to be pulling away from the need to kind of get this testing capacity done so that, you know, other knock-on effects, and by knock-on effects, obviously, we're really talking about, you know, tens of thousands of deaths were reduced because, you know, the care home capacity issue is, is a hard one. I remember looking at it myself and you've got to go back as um, our editor pointed out, Alistair on Twitter yesterday, to go back to March 2020 and try and remember slightly what was going on. Um, Italy was absolutely swamped. Lombardy, the scenes coming out of there were horrendous and at the time it did seem correct that NHS England was asking acute trust to empty as many beds as they could because they were expecting this kind of mass tsunami of patients. Um, but there, did, there was obviously some uh, you know, with hindsight, maybe, or with better planning, it, it doesn't seem correct that people were then uh, discharged into care homes without being tested. And there was that crucial period, which has been well documented, between mid-March and mid-April, in which those tests weren't being carried out. Um, and actually, we did look at some of the stats in, in April 2020, as a story that I did. Um, Boris was um, adamant in a, in a Commons uh, 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 speech that the numbers being uh, discharged into care homes were dramatically lower than last year. Um, and actually, although he was technically correct, without putting that into context, they were lower because all admissions, uh, discharges were lower because there were less people in hospital. But as a percentage of discharges, they were actually higher going to care homes in that crucial period before testing was introduced than they were admissions elsewhere. Um, so I do wonder if that's going to be the lasting revelation that, you know, haunts um, this government, because as much as Lawrence, you've pointed out that the the four things that you've discussed, I think the two that seem to stick in my mind, and you know, do come in if you don't agree, is this idea of everyone not getting the treatment they deserved and not protecting care homes, and obviously that seems to translate more into people's minds because that's relatives and friends dying in what Cummins described as you know horrific circumstances um, because of a lack of government um, kind of planning. So I don't know, I mean, Lawrence, what Just, do you feel about kind of the, the, the fallout from this? Do we think it's going to be kind of brushed under the carpet or do you think that um, it's going to last longer? 
I, I think you're right. Those are the two things that uh, have the most potential to sort of cut through to the public. But also, don't we kind of already know this? It, it, it's, it, I, I feel like it's something that's already in our, in our kind of understanding broadly of what's happened over the last year that yes this adds a little bit more kind of color and perhaps detail and especially especially if Matt Hancock now comes and kind of responds in in detail to to what Cummings has said but given given that we kind of already know this stuff I'm not I'm not sure how much impact it's going to have. What do you think Nick you were going to come in Jonathan? Well, no, I was just going to add to what you said about the or my last point about the testing stuff, um, again, with the benefit of hindsight was just that, like you say, in terms of the, the, when you look at the, the numbers of people that are discharged to care homes without being tested, that is a very good example of um, the 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 outcome, the consequence of Matt Hancock's sort of obsession with the numbers, because I think there was an absence of a a sort of testing strategy of where to focus the tests that were available at the time and it was all about just hitting the right numbers whereas there was very little talk of well which patients or which people should we be testing and you know then you could have said made a clear argument that clearly people that are being discharged from hospital needed to be tested but there was never that kind of formal um strategy at least to my knowledge there was no kind of you know prioritized lists of who should be tested beyond just chucking a test at anyone who was around to take one basically and, yeah. and I think that just sort of yeah I agree that you know the, the the issue of did people get the treatment they deserved and the issue about care homes are probably the two strongest uh, issues but that test that test and trace uh, slash 100,000k target issue had a direct consequence on the ability to um to, to discharge patients safely to care homes. Whether or not, um, I think Matt Hancock will sort of survive this, as you were asking, Sharon, I, I've got a feeling he probably will survive it. I think um, there's a reshuffle probably due in September time, I was reading. It's sort of the earliest one to be expected. And I think there'll be enough time to pass since then for this to blow over uh, in some uh, yeah so I, I think probably Matt Hancock is going to be safe but I'm sure we might return to that later on. Um, he'll, he'll probably stay in post won't he uh, uh, sorry he'll probably not stay in post after the reshuffle because I imagine Boris Johnson will want a kind of very different looking cabinet a sort of recovery cabinet uh, to replace the pandemic cabinet. But I don't see him getting demoted somehow. Uh, I got a feeling he will keep climbing slowly because that that's been his trajectory. And ultimately, people have got fairly short memories, is my guess. And I think if if in September things are looking a bit better, then people might look back and just think, well, it was obviously a very difficult situation, and he did the best he could. And at the end of the day, things have worked out sort of, you know, better than they were. And I can just see him kind of not being demoted for that for that reason because mm. in, in a sense he has had a very very arguably the hardest job of all perhaps in government really um that, that job as health secretary so yeah just a gut feeling I get the feeling he's a bit of a survivor. I mean yeah. obviously there's, there's two reasons to keep him at the moment one being more political and one being more useful and um, we've obviously got this Indian variant surgeon um, in the country. I know Laura, you've been in quite a stat work around that in, in Bolton um, and some of the areas in the northwest that you cover. 
Um, and I guess it, time will tell if that actually becomes a real issue and we see a proper summer wave or if, if we can kind of keep that down with the vaccination numbers. So I guess it's useful to keep them around to take the flack of that if, if that turns out to be something quite significant. And obviously from my point of view, because I, I cover the white paper and legislation quite closely, um, at the moment, we're, the, the view is that this, the second reading of the health bill is going to be um, the last in, in July, the last week of July, just before Parliament re, re, uh, goes into recess. Um, and it really can't be any later than that if there's any chance of getting this passed by April 2021. So sh shifting a health minister, you know, the, the Secretary of State for Health around before that would be quite problematic in trying to get that through. Um, so I think there's two reasons for that. Uh, Lawrence, yeah, do come in. Yeah, it, it would also just look terrible, wouldn't it, if he sacked Matt Hancock now because it would sort of vindicate what Cummings has been saying. And Cummings has also been saying awful <laughs> things about Boris Johnson. So it's not going to happen. Mm. Um, and the other thing I think we were talking about was uh, this idea of everyone not getting the treatment that they needed. And I think that may start to come through clearer um, in the next uh, six months to a year, because obviously, although the government has said that they're not intending to do an inquiry, that won't start until spring next year, which is quite convenient because it means it won't be finished and published before the next election. Um, we do know that hospitals are beginning to start looking through some, um, some of the treatment that didn't happen in, in the 2020s, some of the harm review work that's going on. Um, I've myself have just been doing a piece about Mid, Mid and South Essex Trust, uh, where there were eight cases where they people potentially came to harm because of delays to treatment, of which a independent review by the Royal College of Surgeons found that three, it probably they probably did come to harm. Although we, they didn't say the outcome of those of those patients, we don't know if they then went on to die. Um, uh, we are expected probably to see more of that. I mean, do you think that trusts are going to be quite candid about some of this work and, and, and be quite open about what what you know what happened to patients who were delayed for treatment? Bearing in mind, obviously, it was a nationwide problem that they were doing their best to deal with. This is the NHS, so probably be extremely patchy, and I wouldn't be surprised if. There are lots of trusts where we will simply have no idea what's gone on. Nick, what about your area? You're, you're much more focused in. Yeah, the probably agree with Lawrence to an extent, although there are, I think there'll be one or two refreshing, refreshingly honest chief execs who will say this is actually what happened. Uh, there was a trust in my local patch, um, Bristol, uh, University Hospitals Bristol and Western, where there was obviously um, a big nosocomial, so hospital-acquired outbreak of COVID at Western General Hospital. Now, this was back in June um, 2020, um, but a subsequent review found that you know, 18 people were potentially um, died potentially from COVID that was picked up in that outbreak. And I remember the CEO uh, of Bristol said that the NHS was going to have to face up to, 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 the, to this issue and make sure that it, it thoroughly reviews what's been happening in, in the hospitals and, you know, looking at nosocomial outbreaks, how many patients potentially died as a result of that. And that clearly um, would go a bit against the claim that during the pandemic everyone got the treatment that they needed because clearly while every COVID patient may have been given a, a bed on a, in an ICU or on a ward, clearly patients that didn't have COVID were hugely affected by, by the pandemic and didn't get the treatment that they should have had, whether it was because their treatment was delayed or because they came in for treatment and then ended up leaving uh, with COVID or, or, or worse, dying from it. So. I think there'll be some enterprising trusts that that 
come clean and say, yeah, this has been what's what's been happening. It's these reviews we've done, um, and that will kind of directly fly in the face of that particular claim that Mr. Hancock made. But as Lawrence said, the NHS is so big and and there's so many different sort of um, people out there that will have their own ways of doing things that it probably will be difficult to get like a national picture. So that would sort of contradict that claim 100 percent. I think one of the issues I was looking at as well last year was this um the number of you know the vast increase in people who were dying at home. I think it went up to you know one point to forty percent more than average. Um and I've asked around an awful lot of people, a lot of end of life experts, a lot of palliative care experts, and no one has any idea the quality of care um that people were receiving during that. They don't know if they were dying in pain, if they were even in touch with services. Um and I think that's a, a big issue that really to deserve an inquiry of its own just from the NHS to understand what was going on because we are beginning to see um, a trend well whether see where the continues in 21 where people are beginning to think again about whether they want to be in clearings and whether they would actually rather um kind of live their last few months at home um and I think if we see we do see a more sustained choice of people wanting to be at home rather than in care homes we do really need to go back and understand what's happening with those deaths um so I think that's another area where when we say people are left when Cummins said people are left to die in horrific circumstances and bear in mind he didn't actually give any evidence or any detail of what he meant then. Um, there is an area there which I was, which well, you know, at the time I was quite shocked that no one seemed interested by no one, I mean, government and leading figures in NHS to work out what was going on with these deaths at home um, because we, do, we don't know if they died in pain or rushed to any at the very end of their lives. Um, and the other thing that was quite shocking for me from yes, yesterday um, obviously quite a personal one, but um, I found the lack of plans around shielding quite shocking. Um, I think myself, I started shielding in, um, I think the 16th of March, or maybe the 14th of March. For listeners who don't know, I've had a double lung transplant, so um, I am in the extremely vulnerable category. Um, and I did that on the advice of my consultant. I called her up and she was just very, very, you know, shocked by Italy and was like, if it was me, I wouldn't be going out. Um, and then actually it was very helpful and said, what do you need to know? What do our what do the people we look after need to know about um, COVID? And we started having a conversation between patients and doctors about some kind of Q&A so we could understand what was happening. And it now comes apparent that that was happening five days before the government even thought about children. So uh, according to Cummins, it was the 19th of March when they were like, what's happened to these vulnerable people? And they were like, well, we don't have a plan. And more shockingly, don't suffer helpline because we'll be inundated with calls and we've got nothing to tell them. And, you know, and thanks to some amazing people who sat there pulling two all-nighters, they came up with the shielding plan by the 21st of March. Um, but I, I've wrote about this before, um, for HSJ. I think the thing that shocked me most about that is, you know, it's down to people like me who are lucky, who have the finances, a, a willing boss and can work from home, um, who could make that choice earlier to shield when clearly COVID was becoming a big problem. And it, it's an inequality, again, of, of, of that world, of the ability to, to do what you need to do to keep yourself safe because if you're working in shops or with employers who weren't that lenient you had no choice but to carry on until the government got a plan together so I was quite shocked about the timing of that one I don't know if there's any other bits that you guys heard that kind of ran through other than those top four we mentioned it was the yeah there was a similar claim about PPE and he was sort of saying that he he'd gone in to talk to Department of Health officials about um what the kind of what their plans were to to ramp it up and they said well we can't get these deliveries because you know it's it's going to take them three weeks to or a month to ship them here and he was like why are you using ships you need to fly them and he just it, i mean if you if you believe what comes saying it does just seem extraordinary 
Yeah, it was the I think the PV and the shielding are kind of the clearest examples of just total lack of adequate planning being done for this kind of situation. And, you know, it was, I think, particularly embarrassing for the Department of Health that their PP procurement was so flawed at the start because they'd spent the last two years reorganising how the NHS procures all its um, all its equipment. So, but there's still, obviously, that model just wasn't sufficient at all for, you know, dealing with a, a pandemic of this scale. So, that was quite embarrassing, I think, for the for the DH. And clearly, you know, the, the cabinet office, like Dominic Cummings said, and we re we reported this at the time, the cabinet office stepped in quite quickly to take PPE procurement off the Department of Health uh, and Social Care, and they set up a their own kind of PPE procurement stream using a another company um, to help them as well. So it was, I think, again, based on what we knew before Mr Cummings spoke yesterday and then having listened to what he said the whole PPE description did sound quite quite plausible and um, it that that clearly was one of the the big failures of the the Department of Health in terms of the, the planning for events like this even though they're, they're so unprecedented obviously but, but regardless. He did also make the point himself didn't he that the Department of Health just had so many of these different very new and very big things it suddenly had to deal with mm. um, and it was just completely overwhelmed and so in a, in a way it's you know it's no wonder they that they struggled um, and I suppose we, we should just emphasize as well that um, in, in relation to the to the to what Cummings has said about Matt Hancock lying that as a spokesman yesterday did say that he he absolutely rejected the claims that um, had been made about him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I think one thing we haven't talked about is the fallout with staff. Um, so much of you are saying, do we think Matt Hancock's going to go? Having listened to these issues around PPE, what do we feel the reaction is going to be from people working on the front line who were struggling, as we know, to get PPE? And I think one of the things that is way before, you know, Cummins spoke, I think there's been a bit of a um, disingenuousness when, you know, we've heard Matt Hancock say multiple times that there was no national, um, they, you know, we didn't run out of PPE nationally when we know that locally trusts were really struggling and I think you know the individual staff members who were maybe not wearing the correct PPE or struggling to get the PPE they wanted won't really care if nationally we didn't run out because you know on an individual basis they were going to work being unprotected. I mean is it even feasible now we talked about whether Matt goes, Mr Hancock goes but um, is it even feasible now now that the staff has will maybe listen to this and think you know what was going on? I think it just confirms to staff what they already knew. I think, like we said earlier, you know, there would have been staff working in trusts that knew there was no not enough PPE in that organisation at the time because they were therefore forced to wear inappropriate PPE. I don't think they'll be surprised by anything that, that came out yesterday, except that obviously they'll be disheartened to hear that the national leaders weren't perhaps working quite as well together as they would like to have thought, think on the front line. Um, so I don't think sort of staff attitudes will change particularly towards Mr Hancock. But I think one of the, I suppose, one of the more frustrating things from this that they might take is just that, you know, obviously there were failures, but the fact that the government has been so keen to try and um, 
not admit to those failures. So, you know, by Mr Hancock and, and also, let's not forget, other ministers as well. It wasn't just Mr Hancock saying that care homes were protected or no no one ran out of PPE. Those were lines that were repeated by, I think, most of the, the government ministers. You know, they were all given the same lines. And, you know, it's just the fact that rather than sort of hold up their hands and say, OK, PPE has been a real challenge. And yes, we think maybe some places have clearly run out and had to use inappropriate PPE and we apologize for that. They've sort of they've never really said 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 that. They've always tried to make out like everything just about went okay and you know there wasn't a failure, uh, even though there there clearly was. And that probably is something that annoys staff particularly. Um so and certainly now hearing that it was widely accepted in in you know um in the government at the time that there were these these issues but the message was was very different and that's i think people would just prefer some more honesty at the time rather than hearing it um 18 months later there's also um, probably not a lot a lot of love between nhs staff and dominic cummings is that uh, following the barnard castle episode and and what that did for the kind of public attitudes towards the lockdown I was actually going to lead on to this. So this is a, a thorny question for you both, which I don't know if you expect an answer from, but like, has anyone got any idea or any thoughts as to why Cummins is, is doing this kind of mea culpa now? Because obviously he's talking about things that happened while he was there working um, and he himself apologised at the start. Although obviously, you know, for me, when he was repeating his assistance that he definitely went to Berna Castle to test his eyesight, um, he said at the time that if he was going to lie about it, he would come up with a better lie. Um, has anyone heard or got any thoughts on why, why, why now, and what the aim is? Because it, it seems incredibly strange to have come out, said all this stuff, almost as if he's in the third person, has forgotten that he was in the middle of it all doing it as well. I suppose if if there was a big power struggle in number ten, um, at which he lost uh, ultimately to to other people, such as. Carrie Simmons and and perhaps Matt Hancock, then he wants revenge, and and it and it it did it did feel like there was there was some scores being settled yesterday. But you think where would he go? Where you know, for me, I'm looking at this as like what what job would you do in the future? I mean, obviously, there's lots more people who think about this from a political point of view, and and everyone mentioned that Michael Gove's name wasn't mentioned at all. Um, so whether or not he thinks there's going to be some kind of Tory coup. Um, which, you know, for his his land where everything seems to be about kind of infighting and as you pointed out, the Spider-Man meme where everyone meme was trying to shoot each other. Maybe that's what he's thinking, but um, God knows if that actually will happen. Um, but before we wrap up, I think there's just to point out to listeners that there is some interesting things that could still come from this. We have heard Angela Rayner in uh, the comments this morning was saying that there apparently there has been a lessons learned review by the government about COVID that they're refusing to publish um, and she is now pushing for that to be published and say it should be in the public domain. We do know that Matt Hancock's also did another statement at five o'clock tonight and um, another press announcement, although I wouldn't be surprised if that again focuses on vaccination because that seems very much what he, you know, again, what he's trying to use to get through some of this um, kind of uh, um, and still Cummins has, has said that he's going to present some evidence. So he said he's going to go back and look at his text messages and stuff. So maybe that, um, might hit harder through and we might see more of a, a fallout from from actual evidence because as we as we say at the moment you know listen to a man who you know was pretty much seen as breaking the 
the community spirit and trying to keep to these guidelines by going off to Bernard Castle and then having Boris and also Matt Hancock uh, tweeting out to say that we should all support him and, and move on. Um, it kind of slightly dampens down the claims he made. Um, but at that, I wanted to say thank you to both of you for taking part in this podcast. Um, and listeners, I hope you found that interesting. Um, the podcast is available on all uh, major uh, channels. So um, do uh, listen to, uh, do share it widely. Um, and come back next time for our next podcast, which will hopefully not be about Dominic Cummins and something, um, unless he continues to, you know, take over the news agenda. And thank you.